the Midwest Crime Files is a true crime podcast. In it, we discuss heinous crimes and how they're committed. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the Midwest Crime Files. I'm your host, Gina. I'm Chris. We're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that change them forever. We have a serial killer story today. I thought the last one that we did was a serial killer story. We've had a lot of serial killer stories. Yeah, we did. And we actually have a few more coming up yet this season. Okay. So this is the Ypsilanti Ripper. Okay. The victims of John Norman Collins. In the late 1960s, women in Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor, Michigan, were living in fear as a suspected serial killer terrorized the area. The murderer was targeting young females, often college students, and so he got the nickname the co-ed killer. After two years and at least seven victims, John Norman Collins was arrested and convicted for one of the murders. Only one of them? Yes. After his incarceration, the murders stopped. This is the story of the Ypsilanti Ripper. John Norman Collins was born June 17, 1947, in Windsor, Canada. He had two older siblings, a brother and a sister. His father abandoned his mother and the children shortly after John was born. His father was reportedly an abusive alcoholic. When John's mother married a second time, it was once again to an abusive alcoholic. When John was two, his stepfather threw him across the family vehicle in a fit of rage at John's mother. Holy shit. Yeah. So you throw a two-year-old because you're pissed off at Jesus Christ. Like, awful. On another occasion, his stepfather provoked an argument with another man, and when this man pulled a gun on him, he used four-year-old John as a human shield. Oh my God, what a piece of shit. Right? Horrific abuse. In 1951, John's mother left his abused stepfather, abusive stepfather, and he moved, she moved with the three kids to Detroit, Michigan. She then married William Collins, who adopted all three kids. He was also an abusive alcoholic. She had a type. I guess. And he frequently beat her and beat the children. By 1956, John's mother and William had divorced. Despite his turbulent home life, he was an honor student, captain of the football team, an all-star pitcher for his high school baseball team. He was popular, successful, and seemed to have a really good head on his shoulders. I'm going to show Chris a picture. Yeah. I mean, decent looking guy. In 1965, John began studying education at Eastern Michigan University. He was in a fraternity, but he got kicked out. They suspected he was stealing from the fraternity. Hmm. He was a successful student, relatively popular. He dated, but many of the young women that he dated said that he was just a very angry person and that he was very sexually aggressive. 
No, I mean, I don't deny, I mean, with the upbringing that he had. Right. During his sophomore year, his grades started to drop. He was accused of cheating in class, and he also was accused of several petty thefts. Then in 1966, John learned his sister was pregnant by a man other than her husband. So what do you think he did? Beat the shit out of him. Well, he beat the shit out of the man until he was unconscious. And then he proceeded to beat the shit out of his sister and call her a tramp. Jesus Christ. But you can, like, this is learned behavior at this point. Right. On July 9th, 1967, 19-year-old Eastern Michigan student Mary Therese Flessar disappeared after a neighbor saw her walking to her apartment. The neighbor reported seeing a man in a blue-gray Chevy pull up to Mary twice and start a conversation with her. She was shaking her head both times, to which the neighbor felt like he was probably saying, like, do you need a ride? And she was saying no, but he, he had asked her a few times. And then that was the last time anyone saw her alive. Hmm. On August 7th, 1967, two teenage boys found Mary Teresa's nude body on an abandoned farm. The remains were badly decomposed, but she was positively identified through her dental records. And this is the 1960s, so there's no DNA. Right. The autopsy showed that Mary had been stabbed approximately 30 times in the chest. Her feet and part of one of her hands were missing. She was beaten severely before her death. Due to the advanced decomposition, pathologists were unable to determine if she had been sexually assaulted. The scene showed the body had been moved numerous times before it was placed in the field where it was found. Damn. Yeah. After the remains were positively identified as Mary, a young man arrived at the funeral home. And he, this is like late. After hours, he comes to the funeral home and and the um, caretaker answers the door and he says that he's a friend of Mary's family and he wanted to take a picture of Mary's body as a keepsake for the family. Kind of creepy ass shit. Right. Like if they wanted a keepsake, why wouldn't they do that at like the funeral? Right. It didn't make sense. The funeral home informed the man that this was not possible, for which he responded, quote, you mean you can't fix her up enough so I can just take one picture of her? End quote. He then left the funeral home. The family states they were not aware who this person was. They had not asked anyone to come and take a picture of her. And the funeral home employees described him as a young white male, handsome, with dark hair, driving a blue-gray Chevy. Hmm. Mary Therese Flesser was born on December 4th, 1947 in Willis, Michigan. She was a graduate of Lincoln High School in 1965 and was attending Eastern Michigan University as an accountant student. She was one of seven children born to Teresa and Chester Flesser. Her father was a mechanical engineer and her mother was a homemaker. Mary accomplished a lot during her high school years, earning membership to the National Honor Society 
serving as yearbook editor and participating in band, orchestra, chorus, and drama clubs. She was a huge fan of the Beatles. She was young, determined, and full of life until a man who became known as the Ypsilanti Ripper stole her life. On June 30th, 1968, 20-year-old Joan Shell was traveling to Ann Arbor to visit her boyfriend, but she had missed the bus. She decided to hitchhike, as was pretty common in the 60s. Her roommate said a vehicle stopped to pick her up, and the driver was a young male around 20 years old, clean cut, with short, dark hair. He actually matched the description of Joan's neighbor, John Norman Collins. Her body was found on July 5th, 1968. She had been mutilated and placed along a roadside in Ann Arbor. The body was identified as Joan Shell through dental records. Her autopsy showed that she had been raped and stabbed at least 25 times with a knife. Jesus Christ. The wounds punctured her lungs, liver, and carotid artery. Her throat had also been slit. The lack of blood underneath her body led investigators to believe that her body had not been along that roadside very long and she was placed there after she was killed. So again, moving the body. While part of her body was well-preserved, the other part was badly decomposed. So this led the police to believe that whoever killed her must have did something to try to preserve the body a little longer. Right. You know, like maybe she was partially in ice or, I don't know, refrigerated. I don't know. But it was the decomposition for one part definitely did not match the other. The wounds were very similar to those of Mary Flessar leading authorities to believe they were committed by the same man. Joan Shell was born December 1st, 1947 in New Paris, Wisconsin. Her family later moved to Plymouth, Michigan. She was an art student at Eastern Michigan University. Her roommate had begged her not to accept a ride that night, and when she failed to check in a few hours later, her roommate reported her missing. It would turn out her roommate's instincts were pretty spot on. I wonder if it was the same truck. Is that blue Chevy? I'm sure. Police were told the man seen picking up Joan looked very similar to her neighbor, John Norman Collins. He had matched the sketch of the man who had asked to take pictures of Mary Flessar at the the funeral home as well. So police questioned him and he denies even knowing Joan. He said he spent the weekend that Joan disappeared with his mother in Centerline, Michigan. Police believed this young man, and his mother verified his alibi. On March 20th, 1969, 23-year-old University of Michigan law student Jane Louise Mixer disappeared. She had posted a note on the college bulletin board asking for a ride across Michigan to her hometown of Muskegon. She had recently become engaged and was traveling to tell her parents the news and that she planned to move to New York with her fiancé. Her body was discovered in Denton Cemetery in Van Buren Township. Jane's autopsy and murder scene revealed many differences from the murders of Mary and Joan. Jane was found fully clothed and she had been shot twice in the head. There were no signs of sexual assault. 
She had a garment tied around her neck. And just like the first two victims, though, all three of these victims had one thing in common. Do you want to guess what it is? No clue. They were all menstruating at the time of their death. So that was the only thing that they had to connect these crimes. So, and that's what they went on. They said, you know, it has to be the same person because that's just too much of a coincidence not to be. And this is, you know, 1968, 1969. So this is before people had heard the names Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy. The term serial killer wasn't even something that a lot of people knew. You know, it was a foreign concept. Jane Louise Mixer was born February 23rd, 1946 in Muskegon, Michigan. Jane, who was known to be brilliant and passionate, was studying law. She was driven, independent, and a proud feminist. Jane had been her high school valedictorian, giving a fiery speech about social justice. She wanted to change the world, and if not for the Ypsilanti Ripper, she probably would have. Four days after Jane's body was found, police found yet another victim's remains. The nude and severely mutilated body of a teenage girl was found behind a vacant house in a rural area. In fact, the body was found just a few hundred yards from where Joan Shell's body was found months earlier. Jesus. The victim was identified as 16-year-old Marilyn Skelton. Marilyn's autopsy and crime scene was so horrific that investigators said it was the worst crime they had ever seen. And this is after seeing these other three murders. Right. She had numerous fractures covering one third of her skull and one side of her face. She had been severely beaten and tortured before her death. Her shirt was stuffed down her throat, likely to muffle her screams. She had lacerations on her body that led authorities to believe that she had been beaten with a leather strap. A tree branch had been violently inserted into her vagina. She, too, was menstruating at the time of her murder. Jesus. Like, holy crap. So, if this is the same person, like, they're escalating on their anger and their violence. Yeah, they are. Marilyn Skelton was a 16-year-old student at Romulus High School. She was born March 4th, 1953 in Wayne County, Michigan. She had last been seen outside a restaurant near Ann Arbor two days before her body was discovered. Marilyn was a known drug user, dealer, and occasional drug informant. While the similarities between her murder and the others connected all four, police were not entirely sure that this was not a drug-related crime, especially with the increase in violence. Right. Like, there's like the MO was, to a point, the same with the other three. Yeah. But this one, I, yeah, I mean, the, there's, but there's still, like, one key piece that's, like, the menstruation is, yeah. you know... And they found her so close to where they found one of the other bodies. Right. Which kind of leads you to think it was the same person. Following the discovery of Marilyn's body, authorities formed a task force from five different jurisdictions. Like at this point, they're like, we have a big problem. We have got to find whoever this is. And this is when 
you know, this was really like the first serial killer um, that was actually like called a serial killer. Yeah. Young girls lived in fear as the killer terrorized Michigan. The task force identified all of the victims were brunette Caucasian females who had been menstruating at the time of their death. Police found that all the victims had similar wounds and had something tied around their necks, linking all four murders together. Like, was it just dumb luck that all of them were menstruating or was he looking for a specific type? Like, I know it's because that's something that you just don't know just by looking at a person. So John Norman Collins doesn't give a whole lot of information. He's not like a lot of these serial killers that talks to the press and everything else. But he, he made some comments that we're going to talk about later that lead me to believe that this was intentional. Okay. On April 16th, 1969, another body's found. This time, it was identified as a 13-year-old, Dawn Louise Basom. She was found on a desolate road in Ypsilanti. She was dressed only in her blouse and bra, which was pushed up around her neck. She had been stabbed numerous times in the chest and genitals. She also had slash wounds to her torso, breast, and buttocks. She was strangled with an electrical cord and a handkerchief was placed in her mouth. There was no conclusive evidence of sexual assault, though. Mm, Yeah, but you can kind of infer it. Right. Dawn Louise Basom was born November 28, 1955 in Ypsilanti. She was a middle school student at the time of her death. Like, he's really escalated. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he We is. went from college to high school to middle school. She was last seen the night before her body was found, walking home from a friend's house less than a mile from her home. Her sweater and other items of clothing were located in an abandoned farmhouse near where her body was found. In the farmhouse, police also found fresh human blood stains indicating the murder had occurred here and her body was later moved to where it was dumped. Damn. Right. While searching the house, they found Marilyn Skelton's earring, the 16 year old. So now they can definitely say this is connected. Right. I mean, that's, that's pretty. Yeah. That's a definitive answer. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty damning. In May of that year, an arsonist set, Fire to the house. Five clipped lilacs were laying near the burnt house. And guess how many victims we have? Five so far. Right. So we're pretty much thinking the murderers who burnt this house. Probably because there was probably stuff in the news or in the newspapers about the evidence being found there. Yeah, I mean, the cops were getting close. Right. Police were no long, uh, closer, though, really, to finding who it was, even though they were finding plenty of evidence. Two months later, three teenage boys discovered a sixth body. The body was identified as 21-year-old Alice Cologne. Her body was partially nude and severely beaten. It was found near a different abandoned farmhouse. Yeah. She was stabbed several times, two times piercing her heart. She had also been shot in the forehead and then her neck slashed so severely that it cut through her spinal cord. Damn. Right? She had definitely been raped and one of her shoes was missing. 
like the amount of force you would have to do with a knife. How hard you'd have to press, yeah. Yeah. Alice was born December 25th, 1947 in Middlebury, Indiana. She was a graduate student at the University of Michigan. She was last seen June 8th, 1969, walking home from a party at a friend's house. She was a quiet girl who was interested in photography, often developing her own photos. And for those of you that are too young to know what it means to develop film, Google it. (laughs) She was quiet, studious, and very serious about her studies. She had a degree in fine arts and was an excellent student. With the increase in murders across campuses of Eastern Michigan University and Michigan University, female students were beginning to panic. It was believed that the killer was likely a student at one of these universities. Girls started to use a buddy system while walking anywhere, careful never to be alone. Sales of tear gas, knives, and security locks skyrocketed in the Michigan area. Yeah, well, no shit. Like, that's what, like, as a father, that's one of the things I'm worried about, about our daughters going off into their world is because there's sick people out there. They will, like, all of my girls will know how to defend themselves by the time they leave our house. Yeah. Definitely. And I know like a lot of people are like, you know, why are we teaching girls to defend themselves? Why don't we teach boys not to be something that needs defended from? But the reality of it is, is there's always going to be somebody out there that could be a potential danger. So you do have to teach your daughters to protect themselves. Yes. Teach your sons not to be jackasses. Right. But also teach your daughters. How many people have we talked about already on this podcast though that had a good uh, were a good kid growing up right and then just something clicked or you know something snapped in them well and for me to say i'm not going to teach my daughters how to defend themselves because men should just behave yeah that's true but that means i'm relying on other people to do their job and that doesn't always work i don't trust people exactly um so you know hitchhiking was once popular now was getting pretty rare in Michigan and and police were going on, you know, television and radio and newspapers and telling girls don't hitchhike. It's dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. A reward of $42,000 was offered for any tips that would lead to the killer. And the equivalent of that to in today's money would be $321,750. Holy shit. So a third of a million. Yeah. You know, it was a lot of money. By July of 1969, over a thousand sex offenders had been questioned. Over 800 tips had been investigated, and police were nowhere closer to having a suspect. Police even asked a psychic named Peter Herkos to assist in the investigation. I mean, at least, like, at least this police department is doing everything they possibly can. Yeah. Like he, the person's just not leaving any evidence behind. Right. And this is the 1960s before you had like cell towers pinpointing things and surveillance everywhere, like DNA sampling and stuff like world. that. Yeah. So the psychic, he predicted that the murderer was a strongly built white male under 25 years of age, that he was born outside of the United States. And that he rode a motorcycle. This is what the psychic predicted. 
He revealed details of the murders to police that they had not previously released. So my first thought when I saw that wasn't, oh, he must be a legit psychic. It was, oh, I wonder if he's the killer. Right. He also predicted that the killer would strike one more time and soon. Again, I'm sitting here thinking, if you know all this shit, you're probably the killer, okay? On July 23rd, 1969, 18-year-old Karen Sue Benneman was reported missing by her roommate when she failed to return after curfew. She was a student at Eastern Michigan University. She was last seen around noon on her way to a downtown wig shop. Three days later, her body was discovered nude and face down in a wooded gully. The autopsy revealed she had been beaten extensively, had lacerations so severe that nearly all the skin on her breast had been removed. Fucking Christ. Right? Like, this is beyond just like a serial killer. Like, this is a sick and twisted, like, beyond comprehension. Her ultimate cause of death, though, was strangulation. So, I mean, he did all this stuff to her and then strangled her. And then killed her. Yeah. She had been raped before she was murdered, and her torn garments were found inside of her vagina. Jesus. Like, do you know the amount of force you would have to do to get, like, clothing into someone's, like, oh, my God. On the panties that were stuffed up into her vagina, authorities found semen and hair clippings. Police also noticed that Karen was a brunette, and guess what? She was menstruating. Karen was born on February 10th, 1951 in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She was a college freshman, and she told the clerk at the wig shop the day that she disappeared that she had two firsts that day. It was the first time she had bought a wig and the first time she rode on the back of a motorcycle. Wow. Right. Um, so the clerk described the man that was with her as a 22 year old with dark brown hair riding a motorcycle. Police decided that they had to set up a decoy to find this killer. So they've noticed this pattern of, you know, most of the time he's coming back to these bodies because he's moving them. Right. So they're like, maybe if we don't tell him we found this body. Let's not publicize it. Let's keep it quiet and we'll stake it out and see if he comes. Right. So that's what the, it's pretty cool. Like that they were thinking like that. Yeah. They didn't, I, they didn't actually leave the body though. Right. Like they, no. Okay. I, so what they did, they went to JC Penney's and bought a mannequin. There you go. And they laid the mannequin exactly where her body had been. Um, so, Around midnight, they noticed a young man running from the site where the decoy was lying. Due to heavy rain, they were unable to capture him. Oh, shit. Yeah. Like. Oh, damn. Like you had such a good plan. Yeah. It just, I don't know. And he must have realized it was a mannequin. mannequin, And he's like, fuck this shit. I'm out. While investigating Karen's murder, police thought the description of the man 
that Karen was riding on the back of the motorcycle with matched a description of John Norman Collins, who had previously been on their radar with some of the other murders. He had been seen riding his motorcycle around Eastern Michigan University on the afternoon of July 23rd. When shown photos of John Norman Collins, the clerk positively identified him as the man that was with Karen that day. While investigating Collins, they learned that several of his former girlfriends had reported that he had been angry, sexually aggressive, and had become enraged when they were menstruating. He even told police that he could tell when women were menstruating because he could smell it. Jesus. Yeah. His coworkers said that he frequently talked about the murders, giving graphic details not released to the public. He later said that his uncle, who was a police officer, had provided him with those details, and that is why he knew them. So that was his defense. He's like, I knew that because my, you know, my uncle works for the department, and he told me this. Right. His uncle did, in fact, work for the department, but he seriously denied. Like, he's like, I have never told John anything. That is bullshit. John Norman Collins had been acquainted with most of the victims and lived nearby a majority of them. A former girlfriend lived in the same apartment complex as young Dawn Basom, the 13-year-old, and confirmed that John had met Dawn on multiple occasions. After being identified in a lineup, Collins refused to take a polygraph test. And at this point in time, polygraph tests were a lot more substantial right are held to held to a higher account exactly his roommate said after he became a suspect collins destroyed a box with a shoe somebody's missing a shoe yeah a purse and other items believed to belong to the missing girls when john collins uncle the police officer was on vacation john stayed at his house this was during the same time that karen Benjamin had disappeared. Upon his return, he notified his colleagues that he had found several red stains that he believed to be blood, and he now thought his nephew was responsible. So they come to the uncle's house, and they actually determined that the stains were paint. Um, but while they're there, they search, and they find all kinds of hair clippings. And remember, they found hair clippings. Right. Yeah. So... They decided to see if they matched, and they did. And the hair clippings were actually from where his uncle and his wife had brought their young kids downstairs to the basement and cut their hair, and the clippings were on the floor. And somehow they got inside of Karen's panties. Jesus Christ. Right? That's a sick fuck. Mm-hmm. They also found small blood stains in the, in the basement that matched the blood type of Karen. So this is before DNA. So it definitely looks like she was probably murdered or at least raped in that basement. Right. Um, and it's weird because the stains he actually called about weren't even blood. But this still led to like the evidence yeah. that they needed. A neighbor recalled witnessing John leaving his uncle's home with a deluxe laundry detergent box and hearing muffled screams the night before. Confronted with the evidence against him, Collins burst into tears, but he continued to deny any involvement. Of course he did. He's innocent, he says. The hairs that 
matched, and the other, other evidence led John Norman Collins to be arrested and charged with Karen Benjamin's murder. While awaiting trial, police learned of another possible victim in California. On June 30, 1969, 17-year-old Roxy Ann Phillips was murdered in Salinas, California. Roxy had informed friends that she had met a friend named John who attended Eastern Michigan University. Upon investigation, it was determined that John and his roommate had traveled to Salinas, California on June 29th. Roxy's nude body was found in a ravine with a dress around her neck. She had been strangled and one earring was missing. She was also menstruating. John was formally charged with Roxy Phillips' murder in April of 1970. John went to trial for the murder of Karen Benjamin on June 2nd, 1970 in Ann Arbor. He chose not to take the stand in his own defense. And like I said earlier, he's one of these serial serial killers that really doesn't grant interviews, doesn't talk. You know, like, I, I really think especially Ted Bundy, just like to hear himself talk. Right. You know? Um, so here he is. He's um, up for a murder charge. The main evidence against him is the hair and the blood found in his uncle's home. Right. And the lineup where the, um, wig, pot- you know, he was identified as being the one with her at the wig shop. Right. The defense claimed the forensics were unreliable and that police were guilty of harassing Collins. So that was the defense. On August 19, 1970, John Norman Collins was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. Good for you. Yeah. During the trial, police realized that most of the victims resembled Collins' mother. Always comes back to the mother, doesn't right. it? They also noted that the murder stopped right after his arrest. His mother and sister defended him. They insisted he was innocent and was railroaded by police that just wanted to close the case for the public opinion. Yeah, I don't believe that. Interestingly, though, once he was arrested, the crime stopped. Yeah, all the murders. And there stopped. was like eight murders in a year. And they all stopped when he was arrested. It's like five in a summer. Right. Collins has appealed his conviction several times, all unsuccessful. Police found more evidence that Collins was guilty of killing the other victims, although he was never charged. For example, Collins and Flessar were working in the same building at the time she died. Like, they kept finding connections. Another witness said that he saw... Joan Shell with Collins the night of her disappearance. Another witness claims Collins had an argument with Alice Colomb shortly before she was killed. A boot print on her body was positively matched to Collins' boots. Around the time of Roxy Phillips' murder, John was treated in California for anaphylaxis caused by poison oak. Roxy's body was found in a patch of poison oak. Like, the connections just keep on coming. Yeah. In 1980, John Collins changed his last name to Chapman, the name of his original biological father. As he is a dual citizen of the United States and Canada, he requested a transfer to a prison in Canada. This request was originally granted, 
but was reversed on appeal in the wake of public outrage because the public basically learned that if he was moved to Canada, he would most likely get paroled. Right. Like almost immediately. So they appealed it and they won and he was to stay in the United States. He has been in trouble in prison for contraband violations. He refuses to give interviews and he still continues to protest his innocence. He's still alive protesting his innocence. In July of 2005, DNA evidence from the murder of Jane Mixer identified that John Norman Collins was not her killer. Really? Really. 62-year-old Gary Lederman, a former nurse, was identified as her killer and was charged with her murder. So one thing I will tell you, um, this, the crime of Jane Mixer was the one where she was shot and she really wasn't stabbed. Right. Like it was the least brutal of all of them. And she was not sexually assaulted and she was found clothed. Jane's murder was significantly different, like I said. Um, Lederman was convicted and sentenced to life without parole. He's not considered a suspect in any of the other murders, though. Right, because, I mean, the MO changed. Right. Since the advancement of DNA technology, more evidence from the other murders has come to light. DNA on Alice's clothing was a positive match to John Norman Collins. Technically, they could still try him for that. Right. Because there's no statute of limitation on murder. John Norman Collins continues to deny his involvement in the crimes, but at this point he has exhausted all of his appeals. He rarely gives interviews or answers questions, but requested that everyone leave his mother out of it. It's now been more than 50 years since the reign of terror in Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor. John Collins remains in a Michigan prison to this day. So I have several pictures I'm going to show to Chris. You guys can find these on our blog, www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. That is a young John. Mm -hmm. That is his first victim, Mary Therese. Second victim, Joan. Okay. Third victim. Actually, this is Jane Louise Mixter, who was a victim, but not his victim. Marilyn Skelton, Dawn Basem, that's Alice, and Karen Sue, who he was ultimately convicted of murdering. That's him on his motorcycle. They all kind of look similar. Yeah. And there he was when he was arrested. And that's him now. And he is still alive and well. I mean, he's in his 70s now. Yeah. But he's going to die in prison. Where he belongs. Yep. So I don't know. What do you think of that story? I don't know. Like, it's a weird, I mean, it's another serial killer story. It's another one with a fucked up MO and like, like just a com- really violent. Yeah. That's like, what it I know. Like. like this is a murder podcast and you know, most murders are violent, but like this the shoving, one was like ridiculously violent. The shoving of stuff into the vaginal cavity. Right. Like, damn. Like, I wonder if he just, he was put off by menstruation since his, all his girlfriends and everything said that he got violent whenever they were menstruating. Yeah. I wonder, 
I really think it has to do with his mother. Yeah. And I wonder if it isn't something to do with his mother and her menstrual period. Maybe. I, I don't know what, but some, like, there's a psychological aspect to this that I find very interesting. Right. You know, and it's crazy to me, like, because this was before the Ted Bundys and Jeffrey Dahmers of the world, and I've never really heard of him before. Right. But he's got to be one of the worst. Right. Like, holy crap. Yeah. So, I don't know. For that reason, I think this is a really interesting case. This was actually a recommendation from a listener. So, I want to thank the listener because this was very thank interesting you, for me to research. Um, I've probably had this since, like, season one. Yeah. And been working on it. Um, but, yeah. And I, I commend the state of Michigan for keeping this prick behind bars. Yeah, and like appealing the decision to extradite him to Canada so right. he could have a either like a cushy sentence. Right. Or be paroled. Right. So kudos to Michigan for not allowing this bullshit fucking asshole yep. to get out. So that's a good thing. You know, the more we keep hearing these stories, the more I think every daughter's 18th birthday is going to be getting a pistol. Because, <laughs> God damn it, I want them to be prepared, you know, prepared and safe. Right. Because, like we said earlier, yeah, like we should treat our, or, you know, teach our sons not to do this kind of shit and be better. But I don't trust anybody else to teach their no. son correctly. So, yes, I will teach my daughters to defend themselves. Yep. So, I hope you guys enjoyed this story. Like I said, head to the blog. Um, we are still looking for just a couple more Patreon supporters. So, if you'd like to join us, you can do that from our website or from our Facebook page. And until then, we will see you guys later. Bye, guys. <laughs>